Good morning. Glad to be home, but I got to go back like right after church today. Classes are early. Almost done though. Let's see. Today, I decided that I would speak out of the last chapter of Psalms, chapter 150. And it reads, Praise ye the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in the firmament of his power. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the psaltery and harp. Praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and organs. Praise him upon the loud cymbals. Praise him upon the high sounding cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. This psalm, six lines total. And the word praise is used 12 times in those six lines. So I think David makes his point very clear. You may be seated. I think David makes his point pretty clear that we need to praise God. I mean, he says it six or 12 times in six lines. But it made me think, I wonder how many times David said that. So I looked into it. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, it says the word praise 192 times. Of 192 times, David said it 130 times in Psalms alone. So, just in case you're a numbers person like me, that's 68% of all the times the word praise is said, David said it. That's not counting the 71 selahs he took or praise breaks in the book of Psalms. So, it's a, it's a lot. You might think to yourself, man, that's a lot. Or you might not. I don't read minds. But what I do know is that's a lot. And something that makes that so significant is the fact that David is known as a man after God's own heart. So someone that we should strive to be like, someone who's after God's heart, had praise as a priority. And, you know, that's kind of that's kind of where I'm basing this off of. We need to make praise a priority, not just whenever times are easy, because it's easy to praise God when it's easy, but whenever it's tough and we're in the trial and tribulation, we need to praise God. It doesn't matter how hard, how easy it is. We just got to praise God. When David was in the midst of the battle with Goliath, he said, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of the host of the God of armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. He's given God a little glory in the midst of his battle. I imagine he had a big smirk on his face because he knew God was going to bring him through the battle to victory. You know, David is saying, you know, I know who you are, Goliath. You're some champion, but I serve God. He's saying, I serve the God. David, again, in Psalm 63, while in the wilderness, he said, Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. I will bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as the marrow and fatness. My mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. He is fleeing from King Saul for his life. I mean, if there's ever a time that I'd be like, All right, God, this is tough. I know you anointed me king and all, and you got your hand on my life. This sucks. This would be that time. I mean, he's out in the wilderness starving because King Saul's chasing him around, and he's about to die for all he knows. But David didn't act like that. David wasn't complaining. He's saying, because you're so great, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to praise you with joyful lips. That's what he said. Joyful lips. I mean, he's in the trial of his life. He's about, you know, this close to death, and he's just saying, I'm going to praise God because I know he's going to bring me through. Sometimes it seems like our situation's so difficult that we don't know how to face it and that God isn't helping us. But if we'd spend as much time praising God, 
even when we don't see the outcome of the situation, then maybe we can make it out a little quicker and a little better off. David wasn't going to wait for things to get better before he started praising God. He was going to do it now. The, da- the Bible says that David praised God seven times a day, and he prayed three times. Sometimes it's hard for me to pray once or twice. David fought nine major battles in the Old Testament and didn't lose one of them because he had a relationship with God that was filled with praise. I noticed something whenever I was looking into this because I never knew that David prayed three times and praised God seven. He praised God more times than he prayed. He More times than he asked God for anything, he just said, thank you, Lord, and he praised him. You know, He took a little seal, he took a little praise break because he understood that a relationship with God wasn't Give me, give me, give me. Ask for this, ask for this, ask for this. No matter, God will give it to you. But David understood that, you know, God deserved a little praise. It made me think of something that me and Marty used to talk about a lot. We'd talk about something we called a spare tire religion. And it was, you'll go and you'll be driving down the road and you'll get a flat. First thing you do is you call up AAA Jesus. You say, hey, Lord, I got a flat. I need your help. God comes and he helps you. But as soon as God helps you, you forget about the about the flat and the spare that he helped you with, and you go on back down the road of broken glass and forget all about God. Don't talk to him. Don't say nothing to him. You just go back driving until you get a flat again. You call up AAA Jesus and say, hey, hey, God, you know, I got a flat. I need you to come help me out. Instead of getting right and going down the road that don't have any broken glass on it, you just go down that road and say, well, God's got me. God's got me. You know, what kind of relationship do you have with a spare tire? You, know, you just kind of throw a spare tire in your trunk. You don't think anything of it. You don't love it. You're not thinking about it. You don't check on your spare tire every week or every night before you go to bed. You just kind of hope it's there whenever you have something go wrong. We can't have that kind of relationship with God. I mean, I remember one time, Kaiser can attest, I was a new Madrid and I had a flat. So I go to change it, and then my spare tire was flat too. God will never be flat on you, but that was rough. You know, because you don't check on your spare tire. I didn't check to see if my spare tire had air in it. I do now, but nobody checks on their spare tire, so you can't call that a relationship. I mean, how strong is your relationship with God? Because if you have a relationship with someone, you can't just say, give me, give me, give me all the time. you got to give something in return. I mean, if somebody said, give me this, and I gave it to them, and they said, well, give me this, and I gave it to them, after a while, I'd quit giving them anything because that's not a relationship. I'm, I'm not a charity. You know, we're called to a covenant relationship with God, not a charity relationship. We're supposed to praise God because he's great and greatly to be praised. I've gotten to where in my, in throughout my day, I'll just kind of give God a praise here or there just randomly because, you know, it doesn't matter. I couldn't praise God enough times. If I started right now until the day I died and all I did was praise God, it wouldn't be enough for all he's done for me because he's been that good. You know, we say God is good, but some people describe McDonald's food as good. If that's the same level as God, then we're in a tough spot. I think we need a better word. Because good isn't good enough for my God. So I've gotten to where I'll just give him a little thank you, Lord, here and there throughout the day just because we got to make praise a priority. we let, we got to let David be our example. we got to praise God more than double what we ask him for anything because if we don't praise him, what can we call our relationship? Very good. Thank you, Christian, for that insightful instruction in regard to praise and prayer. Um, If my math is right, if you said it was seven and three, that's 70% 70 praise and 30% prayer. 
So that's a pretty good combo right there. If you'll pray and praise, I think you'll be productive. That was a great word. Thank you very much. We appreciate Brother Christian Turner and are grateful for the insight that he has. And now we have another Christian coming, and that's Brother Christian Kaiser. And we want him to come. He's a wonderful young man who is a very strong part of our wonderful Awakened Youth, and he's going to share from the Word of the Lord with you. God bless you. Thank you. Praise the Lord, everyone. I want to uh, read from Jeremiah 18, verses 1 through 6 this morning. Uh, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again. Another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord. Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in my hand, O house of Israel. You can be seated this morning. Uh, does anybody know what the definition of marred means? Anybody? That's pretty good. The definition of marred is to be spoiled, be corrupted, be corrupt, be injured, be ruined, or be rotted. If you've come into the house of the Lord this morning, ruined, broken, or have health problems, you're in the right place. You don't have to leave the same way you came in. God is here and he's ready to reshape and remold your life. He's here to heal your body. He's here to do whatever you need him to do this morning. All you got to do is have faith and want to change. You don't have to continue to live a life that you once lived. Your life can forever be changed today, and not just today only, but every day. God is still in the restoring business. He's still in the miracle working business. He hasn't changed. Jeremiah's obedience to go to the potter's house was the first step. Take the first step this morning. Make yourself available to God. He's reaching for you. The second step is to don't hold on to anything. We have to give up all of ourselves, not just part of us. God has to have all of us to make a masterpiece. Isaiah 64 and 8 says, But now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay, and thou art potter, and we all are the works of thy hand. So this morning, I urge you to give up all of yourself to God and be obedient to him, and he will do a work in your life. And make you the masterpiece that he intended for you to be. If everyone would just stand this morning. I'd like to take, it's 1030. If we could just take five or ten minutes. And you can come up here to the front if you want to. Or if you want to stay back at your seat and pray. But let's just pray and seek the face of God this morning. Let's just have a little bit of pre-service prayer. We can give him a little praise like what Christian Turner talked about this morning. Let's praise him. And let's just go before him this morning. Let's take about five minutes right now, just right where you're at. If you want to sit down, if you want to stand, if you want to walk, however you're comfortable praying, we're going to take five minutes and go to the potter's house. God, I pray right now that you would help us, Lord, to do what we have heard instructed to do, and that is to submit ourselves, to humble ourselves. God, to say that we need you to help us. We need you, Lord, to do a work in us. I pray that you would help me today, Lord. Help me today, God. 
God to present myself to you. I want to be like the clay in your hands. Somebody put your life in his hands. God, here I am. Lord, I need you to make me. I'm not what I need to be. I'm not what I want to be, but you can make me. I pray that you would make me today. God, I pray as the clay in your hands, Lord, that you would take me and mold me. Somebody submit yourself to him right now. Here I am, Lord. I want you to use me, Lord. God, I need you to help me today, Jesus. I pray that you, Lord, would help me to be what you want me to be. God, I pray as I become that vessel. I pray that as I become that vessel, Lord, that you've made me to be then Lord that you will let me be true and tried by the fire as that fire God makes me into a vessel that you can use I pray that you would prepare me to be that vessel somebody ask him to help you to be a vessel that he can use God if you can take this marred clay that I am Lord take this marred clay that I am Lord and make it what you make it the vessel that you want it to be. I pray as you do that, God, that you would take out all the impurities, that you would take out all of the difficulty, God, that you would take out all of that which is marred. We heard what marred is. It's spoiled. It's messed up. It's the things that are wrong. Take all of that out and then let this fresh clay become that masterpiece of a vessel. God, I can see vessels that are going to be made in this house this morning. I pray that you would do that, Lord. I pray that you would take marred clay, make it what you want it to be as a vessel, and then let that that fire try us. Let us be tried by the fire. Let us come out as pure gold and a vessel, Lord, that you can use. I believe for you to be a vessel that we that we can be a vessel that you will use, Lord. We need you to be that, God. We need you to be that for us, that fire that will make us into that vessel that you can then flow through. I pray somebody ask God to make you a vessel to be used by him, Lord. I pray that you would help me today to be a vessel that you can use, Lord, that has been removed of all of the marring God that has had all of the things that are wrong taken out and then that we will be that vessel that you will use us that you will help us somebody lift your hands and thank him that he's going to do what we've heard today God you're going to help us to cause our life to be cleansed and made into what you want us to be I thank you for it Lord I thank you for it Lord In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We're going to ask now for Sister Sheila. She does an excellent job with our students, leading them and helping them. And she's going to be our final teacher of the day. So would you make her welcome as she comes to share from the word of the Lord. God bless you. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you for the honor and the privilege to be able to get up here this morning. Um, I don't know if Turner picked my notes, but he stole my whole message. (laughs) So some of this is going to be a little repetitive, and I'm sorry about that. But Psalms 3, 1 through 4 says, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Selah. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. Selah. And then Psalms 24, 7 through 10 says, 
Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the, glory, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Selah. You may be seated. On February 10, 1985, Jerry Morris of the Boston Globe wrote about his visit to Thomas Edison's winter home in Naples, Florida. In his article, he described how the light bulbs that were installed in 1925 are still burning today. He wrote about Edison's botanical garden and his bamboo pool. He even mentioned that Edison originally had the home built in Maine and then piece by piece sent it to Florida by boat. Thousands of tourists flock to his winter home every year. And when they do, there's one room that gets the most attention. That place is Edison's lab. It was one of the places where Edison worked on the light bulb and the phonograph. It was a place where he invented the modern battery and a new kind of rubber. It was a place of success. It was a place where he made a name for himself. But as Morris writes about everything he sees, there's one word that stands out. Cluttered. Edison's lab is a mess. It's cluttered. It's overwhelming. It's chaotic. Everything is still organized. Just like he left it in 1931, all of his pipes and his tubes, the cot he even slept on in the corner. Some of the chairs are rusty, but they're there. Some of the tables have stains. It doesn't look pretty. It doesn't feel good. It's not nice and neat and clean and perfect. It's cluttered. It's chaotic. Edison's greatest place of success was his greatest place of chaos. And in Psalms, we have the same thing happening in David's life. He wrote over 73 Psalms throughout his lifetime. And of that 73, only a handful are written while he's on the throne. David tends to write when things go bad. When Saul is chasing him, he's running for his life, but he's writing psalms. When Aslam rebels, he's running for his life, but he's writing songs. When he sins with Bathsheba, his child is dying, he's writing songs. When he sins and numbers the people, he's sick and his people are dying, but he's writing songs. Over and over again, bad times come and he uses his talents. Bad times come and he finds his purpose. Bad times come and his abilities come to the surface. Bad times come and David does what he was created to do. David's greatest place of success is his greatest place of chaos. Brother T.F. Tenney once said that our life is like a cup of water. Hit it hard and whatever's in it will come out. And in the tough times and the hard times, that's exactly what happens. Everything inside comes out. Everything that's in our heart comes out. It's been said that if you want to know a person's true character, you can do one of two things. The first is to give them absolute power. The other is to strip them of all the power they have. Our reaction reveals our character. That's what's so awesome about Psalms 3 and Psalms 24. They're bookends to the same event. When David writes Psalms 3, he's on the run because of Aslam, his son, is after him. He's in exile. His advisors have all turned against him. The people have turned against him, but most of all, his son has turned against him. It's one thing to be hurt by someone you respect. It's something totally different to be hurt by someone you love. And so as David finds himself in this situation where everything looks hopeless, he begins to write. And his true character begins to show through. And he includes a special word, selah. The word selah means to stop, to pause, to reflect. It's a musical term, but it basically means stop and let the message sink in. But David doesn't just use selah in the musical sense. He uses it in the life sense as well. He does it over and over again in his life. Instead of getting caught up in what's going on around him, he puts his foot down. He stops and he pauses. He reflects upon the goodness of God, and he reflects upon how good God has been to him in the past. 
in another place in Scripture, at the end of 1 Samuel 30, the Bible says, but David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. It doesn't just say he encouraged himself. It doesn't just say he encouraged in the Lord in general. It says he encouraged in the Lord his God. He makes it personal. David encouraged himself in the Lord. That's why he uses the word Selah. He says, I'm not going to get wrapped up in what's going on around me. Right now, I choose to stop. Right now, I choose to pause. And right now, I choose to reflect upon the goodness of my God. David has a Selah moment. And that's what's so awesome about David. He doesn't just say Selah in Psalms 3. Later on, we get to Psalm 24. 24 is written after Aslam is already defeated. David comes out of exile. He comes back to Jerusalem. And he's walking up the hill to his kingdom. He's inspired. And he begins to write, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? He writes about how God is the creator of all things. He writes about how God blesses the righteous. But as David ends his song, he does it by honing in on God's goodness. On his greatness. David doesn't just say Selah in the bad times. He says it in the good times as well. He says, even when I'm victorious, even when I'm successful, even when life is going good, I'm still going to stop. I'm going to pause and I'm going to reflect upon the goodness of you. David says, I'm not going to be crushed by my circumstances, but I'm not going to get drunk on my successes either. Four times in the Gospels, it says that Jesus went up into the mountain to pray. We're good at praying in valleys. We're good at praying when times are tough. But we can't just say Selah in the bad times. We, we need to be able to say it in the good times as well. We need to be able to pray on the mountaintop just as well as we pray in our valleys. We should be constantly stopping, pausing, reflecting, putting God at the forefront of our minds. In Psalm 1 and 2, Solomon writes about the blessed man's delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. In other words, as a man goes through life, Scripture is going through his mind. Every moment that he lives, his, this man is thinking about the precepts and the concepts of the word of God. In every decision he makes, God is at the forefront of his mind, and he's blessed as a result. Matthew 14 is the story of Peter on the water, and Jesus calls him out. And when Jesus calls, he answers. When Jesus tells him to come, he comes. And at first, Peter is fine. He locks eyes with Jesus. Jesus is at the forefront of his mind, and he's doing great. But somewhere between the boat and Jesus, reality catches up. Because the waves didn't stop crashing. The rain didn't stop pouring. The lightning didn't stop flashing. The boat didn't stop taking on water. The storm never stopped. The circumstances never changed. But Peter's perspective did. But somewhere along the way, he realized that this probably wasn't his brightest idea. And at that moment, Peter has a choice. He can either get wrapped up in the details of his situation, or he can choose to stop to pause, to reflect upon the goodness of God, to trust his Savior. Tradition says that Moses wrote Psalms 90 and 91 to describe how God delivers his people. He makes several references to the tabernacle and to the exodus. Bible scholars say that every plague that God put on the Egyptians was a direct jab at each of Egypt's major gods. But beyond that, God ravages Egypt. History tells us that Egypt never totally recovered. God weakens the Egyptians physically with sickness. He kills their cattle. He destroys their crops. He has, he has them give their best clothes and jewelry to the Israelites before they skip town. He kills off the heirs of the next generation. And to top it off, he kills his successor to Pharaoh's throne. And reflecting on that, on the circumstances and where everything stood and must have looked from Israel's perspective, Moses writes the following in Psalms 91.7. A thousand shall fall at thy side and ten thousand at thy right hand but it shall not come nigh thee. He's describing a person, an Israelite, 
who's standing in the middle of it all, taking it all in. He's surrounded by death. A thousand have fallen on his left, 10,000 on his right. And all he can see are corpses. All he can smell is the scent of death. He can feel the bones crackling beneath his feet. Looking at his circumstances, things look hopeless. Looking at the details, all he sees is death. But notice what Moses writes. He says, a thousand shall fall at thy side and 10,000 at thy right hand. Semicolon. It's not selah, but it's the same concept. Semicolon means to stop, to pause, to reflect. And when he says, but it shall not come nigh thee. Don't get wrapped up in the waves crashing around you. Don't get caught up in the wind and the rain and the fact that Egypt is falling. Don't get caught up in the fact that the economy's tanked. Don't get caught up in the division our nation has experienced. Don't get caught up in the stench of death. Don't get caught up in the dead bodies at your feet. Don't get caught up with Aslam's in your life. Instead, lift up your eyes, put Jesus at the forefront of your mind and say, God, you are my God and I will ever praise you. There's an alternative meaning to the word selah. It doesn't mean to just pause and reflect. It also means to lift up or to go higher. Selah was a transition point. It was the ancient day equivalent of kicking it up a notch. Selah means to take it to the next level. After Aslam, David never left the throne again, but something was different. Now he wasn't just riding in the bad. He was riding in the good times. Every scholar that has looked into the Psalms of David has walked away with the same conclusion. David worshipped more after Aslam than he did before. Before Aslam, he was still a worshiper. He was still the man after God's own heart. He was the man who danced before the ark. But his experience with Aslam, his Selah moment, takes his life to the next level. It kicks his worship up a notch. And that needs to be our heart cry. Oh, God, take me to the next level. Kick my life up a notch. I don't care what I have to see or what I have to go through. Just take me to the next level. Take me to deeper depths than you. If it takes a Selah moment, if it takes an Aslam, if it takes a storm, a sickness or death, whatever it takes, kick it up a notch and take me to the next level. Amen. I believe that we can practice what was just instructed. We can take a moment here and praise God, even in the middle of our pain, in the middle of our problems, perhaps from our catastrophe and our crisis, God can allow us to see an ability to have something greater than what we have. Sometimes the storm is what provides the success if we'll do what we heard, and that's pause reflect and then pray. So would you just take a moment and lift your hands and your voices and let's give God praise right now. God, I want to give you praise in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my problem. God, I believe that you can propel me to that next place, God, that next level that you have. I want to go higher in you, Lord. I want the roots to sink deeper in you, God. There will be storms that will come. But we will, not, we will not be defined by our difficulty. Our destiny is to praise and to worship you and to see you take us through and we celebrate. Somebody ought to just go ahead and dance in advance that the difficulty will not define you. But your praise will propel you to a place God you have designed and desired. We give you praise. Thank you to our student ministry who did a great job. Would you give them all a hand? They did a wonderful job this morning. And I just want to express an appreciation to Kaiser and Turner and Sister Sheila for the excellent information that they shared with us. They shared information with inspiration. And if we'll make application, then we can see what the Lord will do. And I want to do that. We've been, we've been taught today 
of the priority of praise. How that praise is something that needs to be a priority. How many of you heard the word that praise needs to be a priority? I want to receive that instruction and not just hear it and know it, but I want to act upon it. And then we heard that it's important for us to submit ourselves to the potter's wheel and to take this marred vessel. All of us are that. All of us are marred vessels, but in the hand of the potter, he can make us and mold us into a vessel that can be used. We need that now like we've never needed that before to be made into vessels that he can use. There are people that need us to allow him to flow through us to help them out of the hell that's happening in their life. So what a great Great word we heard there. And then Sister Sheila did an excellent job today talking about the praise break, the pause that produces the possibility of praise that propels us. I want that to happen. I want that to happen in our morning worship service. We're going to have a morning worship service in just a few moments. We're going to begin the service with the time of prayer. We have special needs. We have some young people that are going to be praying for those needs. You're going to join them. Then we're going to have a great time in worship and praise. Excited about the children's ministry joining us. We're glad you're here. Before before you uh, go take your break, make sure you tell some I'm glad I was in Bible class today and didn't the students do a great job. God bless you. Take just a few moments break and we'll begin our service in just about seven or eight minutes.